Welcome to Inspiration and Adaptation. This is the second chapter in a new series of open dialogues with artists about adapting and inventing. The conversation is recorded and presented as a podcast at benellarts.org. I'm Asia Freeman, Artistic Director of Benell Street Arts Center, and joining me today are Nathan Schaefer and Melissa Shaganoff and a bunch of wonderful um, artists and supporters across Alaska. So on inspiration and adaptation, we're exploring questions about how artists are responding and innovating and adapting in COVID-19, um, during this recession, the environmental crisis, and the current human rights movement. How do artists express agency in challenging times? Nathan Schaefer is a new media artist from Alaska specializing in augmented reality and digital humanities. He's a founding member of the Meme Writer Media Team and Manifest AR. He was profiled by PBS Digital Studios as part of an online collaboration called The Future in 2014. Nathan's geo-based augmented reality works have been displayed in every continent in multiple venues across the world. He contributed chapters to augmented reality art, augmented reality games too, and augmented reality education in 2020. He recently received a Creative Capital Award in 2020 for Winter Moot, which we'll talk about. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you. Melissa Shaganoff is part of the Udziju Caribou, and excuse me if I haven't pronounced that right. And nice. say again. I said Yudishu. Yudishu. And will you also pronounce the um, yeah. fish eater clan? Yeah, yeah, Koyakata. Koya Akara. Koya Akara, thank you. From uh, the Chickaloon Village, Melissa is Atna and a Paiute person, an artist and social activist, currently curator of Alaska Pacific University's art galleries. Within her current curatorial and artist work, Melissa has focused intently on potlatching. She believes the only future in which institutions embody indigenous ideologies is one that publicly recognizes its power and autonomously gives it away. Melissa is part of the N Collective, a new media group focusing on transparent and accurate representation of indigenous experiences in fiction and science fiction content. Melissa was selected for the Huevda Museum's Artist in Residence International Residency in Huevda, Sweden, and she's currently working on a year-long project revolved around social engagement and conversation as art practice. And I will say that on behalf of Benel, we've been very happy to be a part of frequent conversations with you lately. Melissa, thank you for joining us again. Yeah, Benel's my, my, my weekly call. I <laughs> know. <laughs> we've got one topic or another to, to talk about lately. And, and there's, just, there's just so many that are on all of our minds between, um, you know, environmental crisis and the... Um, in periled position of um, you know of culture across our planet, we are talking about um, to the pandemic and the human rights crisis, and so many of these things are um, completely relevant to the work of Wintermoot. And so, I'd like to begin by asking Nathan to describe what Wintermoot is. Could you describe the project, its mission, and how it got started? Yeah, uh, so the really short answer is it's a comic book series. 
set in Alaska. The slightly longer answer is that Winter Moon started as, um, but when augmented reality, which is uh, one of the mediums that I've been working with for over 10 years, um, when, when it first came out on, on devices, it was iPhones before iPads, uh, Manifest AR, one of the groups I work with, started doing these, uh, they're basically like psychogeography festivals. So it's just these shows uh, built with AR. And we were doing them all over the world. You know, Unseen Sculptures was the biggest one. It was in Australia. Uh, but the one I would host up here in Alaska was called Wintermoot. And over the years, Wintermoot became less and less a geo-based festival. And we started doing publications. And that was actually how I ended up meeting Melissa, was the fifth year of Wintermoot. Uh, we did a comic book zine kind of thing with Jimmy Reardon's Sousier group. Um, and we augmented some of the comic books and then do a couple other projects later. And uh, the Dirigibles of Denali project where we recruited all the Dome City proposals in Alaska. And then we had all this extra work left over and I wanted to do a comic book. And I don't know why I picked that name, Wintermoot for the comic books, but it seemed like a nice extension of it. And um, so from that, once we started doing the comic book, um, there was a couple just odd artistic decisions that, that we made. And then uh, with Richard Perry, uh, who's a writer that um, did work in the Dirigibles of Denali Project, he came to me and said, you know, it would be cool if we just started doing more of this stuff. So we started pulling people together. Um, you know, at that point it was mostly indigenous Alaskans coming together to do genre fiction. So we created this shared universe model where we all kind of assist each other in producing content. And it's also turned into a bit of a way to do things appropriately in, in a cultural sense. Like if you're gonna, work with Alaskan cultures, how to navigate that, how to collaborate inside of those spaces. Um, there's a couple different words for it. The one I've been using is an enrichment process because I found that when you collaborate with people, it, it increases the actual, um, not just interest, but it, it makes it better. Like the actual content is better, not, not just richer, but it's always better. And, um, so we want to keep doing that. So right now, you know, Melissa's doing a project and Demi Maharis is doing a project and Richard, like there's all these projects inside of it. But Wintermoot had enough trajectory that we're on like issue three now and we're about to start releasing new things. That was the long answer. Sorry. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and do you have like a specifically a mission statement for Wintermoot? Does it have? We do. Demi wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's pretty great. It's it's um I mean it says a lot of things, but basically, you know, we, we want to reflect the cultures of Alaska in a respectful way. We want to increase the ability of children to technology and uh cultural relevance and we want to increase representation. I mean it's a it's a really beautiful statement he wrote, and it's actually at the beginning of book three in Wintermoot we put it in. Mm -hmm. Why does it feel so important to you to do this work today? I mean, I, I know that you're also a, a um, special ed teacher 
Mm -hmm. And um, you're a really gifted artist who could do a lot of different kinds of things with the vision and the talent you have. What, why is it important to do this particular work and to do it collaboratively with indigenous artists today? That's a wonderful question. Well, thank you for saying all those nice things first too. Uh, I don't have an easy way to answer that. So it would have been really easy for me to just do a comic book on my own and um, use Alaskan culture however I see fit, which I, I, you see that a lot. This is actually a conversation we were having yesterday with Melissa, was um, the idea of the novel. Like it's this super lauded uh, art form where it's, it's just, it just reeks of this rugged individualism. And there's nothing wrong with novels. Like if people like them, that's fine. But it's just such a one-on-one -on -one uh, overly regarded format and um, it, it just doesn't reflect a lot of the values that we're trying to embrace now. So collaborative storytelling or interactive storytelling or, or, or being willing to not be the one auteur, like the one author that ever, that people are kind of worshiping is this genius creative individual and instead having a community practice where you make things collaboratively with other people. It, it's really hard for a lot of void artists to let go of that sense of ego because as they're coming up becoming artists, a lot of their internal fantasy is this fantasy world of being a rich, successful, rugged individual artist that the world worships and just thinks everything they do is genius and brilliant and wonderful and uh, just constantly lauded. And while that's all fine and good, there's just other ways of being that seem to be more relevant right now. Melissa, I can't hear You're you. Muted. Oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yes. My cat was just purring into the microphone, so I tried to move her. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's measuring success in a different way, right? You know, it's looking at like, what is a successful artist? Like, what is a good artist? What is, and, and, and also the structure of the story, you know, it's like, what is something that we, that, that we can absorb and understand, you know, I mean, like I've talked about this in so many different ways, but, you know, linguistically, you know, biodiversity, linguistic diversity, you know, science has proven that that makes a strong, stronger society, a stronger culture, you know, and I think in our storytelling, you know, shifting the goals, you know, not only the structure of the story, but, but who, who in the end is, is the one telling it, you know, I think can change something to be more, more true in a way for at least for some people you know and i mean i actually have the mission statement right here i, I have the copies right by me but um if you don't mind nathan i'm going to read uh, so the mission statement to create promote distribute exciting comic book stories new media fashion exemplifying and rich regional cultures of alaska in ways that both honor the heritage and forge new concepts to bridge the with to bridge the past with the future you know, and I think that was like, I, I kind of sort of came to my work with Nathan very sideways, but, but, but that's the reason, you know, it's to create something new and to look, and I think in a way, science fiction and new media is completely in primed to do so, but. 
Anyways, I kind of interrupted. <laughs> no, not at all. We haven't heard much from you. And I'm so curious about what it is about the comic book form, specifically the graphic novel, um, that's that's important to communicate or connect, connect contemporary, you know, audiences with indigenous ways of thinking. What what is it about the comic book form that? Ah, uh, sorry. If you hadn't answered, Melissa, but uh, so when we first. So, uh, I had all these ideas for comic books and I wrote one and I had actually sent it to Demi years ago and he liked it and I liked it and I started doing it. And then I realized it was a white superhero that I had written just kind of um, because I did an Alaskan superhero. Here's this white guy. And there was all these native characters that were kind of on the periphery that I was wanting to talk about. And I kind of realized like, Oh, <laughs> I I had, kind of done the same thing. So I went and wrote another one of the comic books I had written and was planning on featured an Inupiat superhero, like as the story. Um, but that had come about just because being in Alaska, being friends with so many different artists, many of them are native and they have not been quiet on how cultural collaboration works. Like that's a very common topic we talk about all the time. And uh, without saying, once people start doing Alaskan superheroes, this is the process I would like them to follow. Um, I mean, it, it was, it would be obvious to most Alaskan artists how to approach that, that format. So um, I kind of just like took a deep breath, got over myself and got rid of that, that first story and just started right where, where it, it should be. And it was kind of like nerve wracking at first, but, Honestly, it, it was, um, forget the question now, but it, 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 the, the equivalency of Alaskan cultures to superheroes was just so bizarrely perfect. Like the cape and cowl and the masks that superheroes wear. Uh, that first thing we did instead of a mask, we just put snow goggles on a character, which fit, was like a hundred times better than a mask. It was like way more awesome. It looked cooler and it fit the same kind of visual trope but every time we would work on characters, there was always that same thing from the Bentwood hats uh, to different uh, like vestments or uh, like the dentelium or wooden pieces or whatever. It was just always so easy and effortless to move into like a, a much more interesting form of representation. I think that says so, so much about you, Nathan, as an artist, because, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, the ego and stuff driven in, in writing and in maybe like creating this comic book, but making a point to challenge yourself into, and in some ways, I think all artists are narcissists, but removing the narcissism from it, removing kind of like yourself, like I can, I think in so many ways, like writing a superhero story that is so closely identified or coded identified to who you are, in some ways, it's, it's, it's just telling your own story, you know, but you made a point to tell someone else's story and to do cultural collaborations with people like Demi and I to make sure that it was accurate, you know, and to make sure that it was coming from a perspective of like, of realness and of, of that sort of, um, I don't know, transparency. 
I mean, like in what you're saying too, just about like the, the, the cultural, the, the traditional objects, you know, bringing them into, into like futurism, like indigenous futurisms or bringing them into, you know, a, a visual media that's, that's very modern. Like, I think that in some ways you are, you're lifting something up for young people to be, to be like cool, <laughs> you know, that, oh, this is like a cool part. But it also, I think is like, it's like allowing all sort of audiences to look at these objects as forms of technology. And I think in so many ways, you know, coming from a museum background, collections and stuff is kind of put in this sort of box that they are, that they are kind of like the past, right? And that they are part of, they are part of um, a life that is no longer lived, you know, but bringing them forward into, I think that it, it just, it just fully amplifies what traditional means. And traditional is a fluid concept. It's what's used by native people all the time, you know, and you're, you're challenging what we consider tech, what we consider as technology, right? Because every, every, every form of, every culture, every object they create is a form of technology and you're, you're amplifying them to show what great technology and what, you know, how, um, how, how beautifully centered in the plan place in the land that those things are, you know, and yeah. So um, what is it about the comic and the superheroes that connects with time and space in terms of indigenous cosmology? What's, what is that, can you talk about that connection, Melissa, that, that really makes the, the comic book form and the, the kind of story structure that's explored? Oh gosh, I, I can really talk from like my perspective about that because like I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not lovingly the nerds that uh, the whole in collective is with comic books, but I definitely, um, you know, look at comic books as, you know, in a way, like I was just reading Demi's, you know, in a way it kind of exists outside of time, you know, it kind of exists in this sort of future that is imagined, but not necessarily part of a linear timeline, you know, to me. And I think that in some ways that really talks to sort of indigenous ways of being, like not really viewing things as kind of ending or, or having like a start and a beginning, that they are circular and that your contributions to the world, to your community are ongoing. And you're really just a part of that circular contribution, you know, and that's just like my whole like thing, right? It's like, I think, feel like I talk about it on every <laughs> video call with you, Asia, but like potlatching, you know, it's a circular thing of, 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 of giving before you get and keeping that, you know, up. And I think that um, for comics, they can kind of exist outside of time, you know, and they can kind of become this sort of imagined universe. And in some ways, that's really good for people to be able um, to be able to imagine indigenous people in the future, because I would say the vast majority of people might not, that might not be something that's included, you know, so putting it at the forefront, that is, that is, that is very important in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That was perfectly said. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wish, well, we could screen share a little bit, but Demi's um, comic book that he's putting out really is, it's, it's like a final fantasy world, but it's Chickaloon. That's not in the future. It's not in the past. It's in the middle, but it's just this ever present. And um, the can way he... There? But can I interrupt you to ask you yeah. while you're talking to take us there through screen share so we can look oh. at 
Demi's um, depiction, if you're willing, or a different page. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put some up. Um, I don't want to give too much of a way. This is just rough, rough stuff. Okay. Can you do? Can you go down to eighteen? Uh oh. Or not eighteen? Shoot, I just passed it. Um, actually, no. Uh, just wait for a sec. Sixteen. Oh yeah. No, not this one. It's the one with the feast. Oh yeah, it is this one on the bottom. Oh, this is a good one, actually. Yeah. Well, th so this just to give an example. This is. This is like a whole story he's got. Um, this is Chickaloon. It's got comic books and video games and modern houses. And it's like a winter festival coming in. Um, the two main characters, uh, Mr. Yelly and Sasquatch Emoji, which um, <laughs> this is like a young adult manga kind of thing. And I think once this finally comes together, it's just going to... Alaskan kids are just going to love this so much and so deep. It's so wonderfully done. But uh, oh, here it is. So a modern kitchen. Uh, they've got comic books. They've got video games. And but there's this character here, uh, the, the 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 grandmother that puts them on all their adventures. Um, it's it's just got like the these traditional elements from from or I guess ancestral elements that are in the future, that are in the past. The only equivalence I can think of is like, if you watch some random fantasy movie or read some random fantasy novel, they're just ambiguously medieval Europe. There's no like real, it's out of time and place. It could be on another planet, like Lord of the Rings or whatever. But this is like an indigenous version of Chickaloon out of time and place. And he, he has a tendency to illustrate that way, too. When you look at his Yana Dia um, comics, which he did for the Chickaloon tribe, which are the, the Yana Dia stories, uh, he would do things like that where, you know, the, the grandmother would be in uh, ancestral, traditional regalia. Uh, Lynx would be in modern contemporary clothing. And then Raven would just have shoes and a backpack. Um, but it, it, it would just blend all these things together. And when you talk to Demi, that's really what he wants is that um, what, one of the mantras he would always, he always goes to is, is connected to like his mother and um, that cultures tell new stories, like thriving cultures tell new stories and, and cultures that are having a hard time only retell old stories. Um, so he, he's very purposeful about telling new stories. And even his mother wrote a new Yana Diaz story, which he illustrated at the end of all those books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Pat Wade was a really uh, amazing person, um, Demi's, Demi's mom, who was the daughter of, of Katie, who is probably the, 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 at least the structure for this character, Aunt Katie, who is Chickaloon Matriarch. She started the Yanida A school. Yanida A starts for stands for ancient stories. 
So they're lesson stories. And in some ways, they kind of align really well with Demi's work and this idea of sort of out, of existing outside of place and time because they're lesson stories. So they're the stories that you would be told as a kid. That's why the schools named it is because they would be stories that, um, you know, taught you the lessons you need to learn on how to be good to people and how not to cry and, you know, and things like that. So what is what does indigenous futurism mean to you, Melissa? How would you define it? Hmm. Um, indigenous futurism. I mean, the kind of work that I'm doing with this group uh, is is more of like a cultural consult con, like consultation, or I guess, or um, like. It, what it means to me is, is um, gosh, how do I put it into words? We have, I think that we have like the opportunity to create stories and media that, you know, involve native people at the very beginning, at the impetus of creating the story, you know, at, at creating, creating the the main characters the plot and the resolution you know and and those those structures look very different from a native perspective so i feel like native futurism is is really making those perspectives visible and making those storylines and resolutions you know part of the impetus of what we of what we look at as as like story structures you know, it's like I I, I want to see a story where like maybe the 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 main character is kind of punished because of something, you know, which is part of like Yanni Da'a stories. I want to see, um, you know, stories that involve moments of protest of you know times that like we're in today, which is very much a Chicklin thing, you know. And I think native future futurism is is including native people in the development of these stories. You know, um, I think that maybe your question was more towards the genre and I don't think I necessarily know how, how that, at least not personally, how that looks for me, you know, but I think that in its creation, native futurism is, is telling these like very important cultural philosophies and and making them accessible in story because if they're accessible in story then we all can learn from them if they're accessible in story then we all can abstract them in some way to into our lives um you know it's like i i talk a lot about potlatch philosophies and a lot about you know these ways of being and like our first like i honestly when nathan asked me to be part of this i wasn't really sure like why or like what sort of um connection i could have but he asked me just to edit the winter moot and just to go through it and you know we were able to share things between us that was that were that were such important parts of Danae and like athabascan ideology that fit so almost like perfectly into this story you know the story of of a superhero who is is realizing their their powers and actually that power is very like connected into 
like native ways of being of wanting to of 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 seeing animals as like the higher power as as essentially god and like knowing all knowing you know and this this character who wants to turn into an ice worm that almost became her intention is because she wanted to become an ice worm because she would be all knowing and she would know the intentions of everybody and that that became a superpower. Like that's, that's amazing. Right. Like that's, that's a part of like Dene philosophy that, um, that I wish more people knew because I think that it would make everybody like walk through the world differently. You know, if they thought that, you know, the animals and the land knows your intention and that it will only reward you if you're a good person. You know, it's like, I, like, I think like, that's like a really beautiful, and even if it's just a kernel of it and part of the story, it's, it's relevant and it's important because not only is our native people going to read that and be like, oh, that's connected to me. It's also might going to change the minds of people and, and how it is they, they absorb things and do things. And it's a long answer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was beautiful. Interesting. <laughs> So I got to say, I, when Melissa came in, I didn't necessarily think of it as cultural collaboration. The, the goal we had was since we had money was there was people that were doing interesting projects and we kind of wanted to give them autonomy to do it. But one of the caveats was that we were going to be having discussions with each other. So there was no like serious plan to have M Melissa as an editor. We really wanted Melissa to just be around and develop something on her own and Demi was going to do his own thing. But um, like when we did the Comic-Con up in Fairbanks and Melissa was up there and we had like some of the, like Rochelle and um, Dewey were there, the, the Molly Denali thing and uh, Richard and it, like it was just this big group of people. And when we started talking, we realized that um, just the friendly sharing of information and uh, my wife, Joelle and, um, Demi and Melissa and I just spent a couple of days at the hotel, you know, drinking coffee and talking more or less about all the different ways we thought of these things kind of happening. And so, yes, Melissa does cultural consultation, but that's not the credit she's going to get for any of the winter mood stuff. I don't know what you would call it. It's, it's, it's definitely writing. Like she changed what, I don't know, there's, there's like a magic about the way she talks when she puts things together, her, her ability uh, to put patterns together. Um, it, it, she, 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 it's, 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 it's quite a thing to watch. And it, it's another thing to experience it with her while you're having just a nice dialogue. Uh, but the things she'll see to put it together, what, what she notices. And so like on the third one, uh, she has writer, like she has co-author credit because there's no way the story, um, if I had just written it myself and then got cultural consultation would have been what it is now. Um, it, the whole thing dynamically and for the better changed all over and it rewrote so much of what we were doing. Cause you know, the whole winter mood is supposed to be like 10 books and every one of them kind of explores a different culture a different group of superheroes, uh, a lot of them, <clears throat> uh, it, it just, it goes all over the place. Um, but this particular one we were working in, the, the main hero is Denina Atna. So um, the language and stuff that 
that she's using and, and talking about and the place, uh, I don't know, the whole thing was, it's, it's so site specific. Um, I feel like I've completely lost topic, but uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's more than cultural consultation that Melissa does. It, it, it's, a, it's a deepening, it, it's an expansion of the world inside of what it is. Uh, and, and <laughs> the same thing goes for Demi because she's like it's a very close group. We there yeah. we do spend time talking about that, but <laughs> Demi's Demi's story wouldn't have been the same either without what Melissa's doing. Like I I agree. It, it has been like kind of a magical collaboration in some ways. In like the physical way and that I haven't like seen Demi since I was like 12, you know, and then like coming back as both as like adult artists, you know, doing this and, you know, really have to thank Nathan for, for bringing us together again, you know, and, and kind of getting to know him as a person and how our sort of artistic lives align. And, um, but like with all the same context of like Chickaloon and like Yanida on protest and all that and so it's um yeah it's uh it's it's been it's been really special you know and i uh, i think that i think that you know nathan and demi who are really these drivers of story you know is uh um i think moving me into part of the kind of work that that i want to do which is you know conversation is is like art practice you know it's like how do you have like communication and discussion and stuff that informs art in different ways and so it's it's in many ways like teaching me things so yeah i just want to say that i really appreciate that sort of um longer you know sort of trajectory of of those two answers but the, what it started out at nathan was how would you define indigenous futurism so i want to bring it back around to you and so that's a, that's a term I like a lot. I would define that as just um, science fiction that incorporates an indigenous worldview. I wouldn't necessarily call myself or say I work in indigenous futurisms, but I definitely would be adjacent, I guess. I, maybe, maybe I do. I don't know. I definitely enjoy it. There's, there's certain aspects of a lot of, I'm just going to say Alaskan cultures that they've, it's like Melissa was saying earlier, they just fit so seamlessly and perfectly into these ideas inside of science fiction. The far future, the far past, the circle between the two. Uh, when... So one of the stories I'm I'm working on right now, I'm not gonna like give too much away, but um, Benjamin, one of the guys who came up with the story, he, the conversation we were having is that Raven is a multi-dimensional being. So he had a story him and his son set up because Raven is multi-dimensional. And how does a multi-dimensional being interact with say cyberspace? So like developing that story. And then when you start, looking at the basic things like every so raven is so dynamic in alaska there's so many ways that character presents itself or is or isn't and so when ben and his son are like talking about 
Raven is a trickster. In this context, like it just so perfectly creates a cyberpunk character or you could go back a little bit in time and it does this like steampunk thing and then it does its own set and then you put it in the future and it just, it gets so amazingly rich and interesting to think about. And um, so indigenous futurisms for me, to, to bring it back to that, is kind of a term we're using right now, but it, it's a term, I'm, I'm gonna get a little academic here, sorry. So, so there's all these representations of like Native Alaskans or Native Americans or whatever inside of science fiction that tend to be mostly problematic, but that's because we, ha we had been clinging on to this um, rugged individual novelist, sci-fi novelist that would do a little bit of research and then do like this genius piece of work. In today's world, we have more opportunities for research, collaboration, and interaction. And honestly, a lot of um, indigenous communities are able to share more freely and without like the heavily curated hand of white society on their own cultural information, which is still a big issue. But like say the good example is Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, who one of his main characters is Yunungan, uh Ravenoff who has like this nuclear bomb strapped to his body and he's at war with the United States because of Amchika, the nuclear testing on the Yunungan homeland. And, um, you know, Neil Stevenson, not Alaskan, did his absolute best to learn about a Yunungan culture. He wasn't trying to misrepresent the people. He did a lot of studying, but what he could get about Yunungan culture was a white story, uh, the Amchika story, and he got a little bit of culture from the Firecracker Boys and, and, and that kind of, telling of cultural information but he didn't get the deep Yunungan stories that that come with that culture so they're and they're one of the like most interesting people on the planet when you start hearing their stories the way they use language the way they use um just just basic ways of being inside of it and i think if neil stevenson had written snow crash today and actually spent the time somehow with the Yunungan person and was able to absorb those stories, it might be a better one. It, uh, you know, they're doing Snow Crash on Amazon or whatever. It's going to be a streaming show. This would be a good opportunity for them to, you know, at least cast an Alaska native, but to honestly pull in people from the culture to talk about that and how to represent it in a, a better format. So you're talking about this um, opportunity in storytelling that exists through, these, through Wintermood that empowers younger indigenous storytellers to bring to life a sense of time and a relevance, a true relevance of stories that have endured and will travel forward through this form that have been underrepresented or misrepresented yeah yeah there's like a whole oh go ahead no 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 Melissa, you go please no well what, what you said too it's like it just it hit so many points right because it's it's talking about the story that is right the story that is from the outsider perspective and chaining it into the insider perspective you know the insider perspective which is deep you know it's that cultural glacier you know it's like you can have like the cool sort of like outwardly you know 
I don't know, like physical, physical, what they're wearing, but below that, you know, the deeper philosophies of things that can only really be disseminated and described by a native people, you know, because, because it takes, it takes a whole life to understand those things. And so it takes a whole life for them to, you know, for us really to, to, to talk about what that is, you know, and so it has to come from that, you know, and it has to come from somebody who's lived it. Nathan, you've been working in collective for a really long time. Mm -hmm. I would say getting to know you, it sounds like you've been working in a collective format for like 25 years or so. And that's, that's really admirable. And it's also really challenging work. I mean, you're constantly putting your work up for edit, um, sharing credit, um what what really deeply holds you in that kind of work that collective work hmm. i don't know why i was attracted to it i mean by nature i'm kind of an introvert i i don't tend to like like being around lots of people but all right, so the, the only answer, and this is going to sound maybe even like a cop-out, um, when I was when I was young-ish, I, I was maybe having a bit of an existential crisis with myself as an artist. So what, what kind of work did I want to make? Who did I want to be? And I, just some part of me was like, what do you like? You know, what makes you happy? And at the time, the happiest I felt was when I was just having a good time laughing with a small group of friends or, or one other friend. So that, that those moments I've had in my life where I really get to have a nice, wonderful connection with another person and just enjoy being with them was what I felt was important for me. So I wanted my artwork to be a reflection of that. If I wasn't going to make artwork that wasn't communicating that for me, because obviously, especially a lot of the work I had done 15, 20 years ago, you know, it was highly conceptual or whatever. So most people aren't going to even like it at all. But for me, it was funny or it was enjoyable and it was pleasant. Um, and working in, in collectives, was just a way to always have that um, that moment. You know, one of the collectives, the Meme Writer Media team, that was uh, my wife, Joelle, and I. So, you know, my my favorite person in the world and I were, you know, essentially making artwork together for years and years and years. Um, you know, uh, we, we kind of stopped making work as the Meme Writer Media team once memes became like an internet phenomenon. So this was, you know, 90s and early aughts. It, you know, it was mostly performance and inter interactive work, which um, Joel actually was light years ahead of everybody, but uh, creating these interactive events with people was just so fun. Um, but that that was um, the reason why the collective, the manifest AR, that was just happenstance that I was one of the people who was developing augmented reality in grad school. And then uh, one of the other 
artists in the program was connected to this larger group. Uh, and so in 2008 or seven, I don't even remember now, right as soon as mobile augmented reality became available to the general public, like we all just came together, but it wasn't like we were making a lot of work together. We were just helping each other out. I, I think a lot of that group, they were really interested in being in history books. Um, so I, 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 I don't understand that impulse of wanting to get credit as the first one, but I, I understand, you know, wanting to get recognition for something you did. Um, that's not going to happen with social art. That's not going to happen with augmented reality. The, everybody who developed all this stuff, all the collective work, it, it's all fine and good. Some of us will know, but you know, it's another medium and they're going to talk about other people that do it. And so that's fine. So you got to be centered somewhere else. Longwood did. Mm -hmm. Melissa, what do you think about collectives? I mean, as you move more deeply into social practice and dialogue, you're constantly submitting yourself to a more collective experience. And there's something in there for you. Unmute you. I can't hear you. Dang, sorry. Um, I think that I my art practice has moved from it's I feel like it's finally becoming my own. I think that um, in my 30s, but I think that um, for a long time through school through basically all the artists I looked up to in museums, I had a very sort of directed view of what what an art life looked like, you know, and, and what measured success, you know, and what measured um, what I could be proud of myself for, you know, and I think that I've learned, you know, really just recently, it feels like within the last five years that my art and my soul is fed by people and by conversation and by being in community with others. You know, uh, I used to kind of like joke that, oh, it's like, I just want to be a hermit painter and like, just go away and just do my own thing and, you know, and, and be amazing and sell to museums. And, but that's the life I wanted, you know, that was kind of separated from, um, in some ways, like accountability to others. I think in collective, you, you really, um, for me, it's a, it's a way to sort of like show, show, um, show my cards and to get feedback and, but really it's about like building something that could be its best version, you know? And I think that you really can only do that with critique and with others, you know, in some ways, and um, at least the kind of art that I want to do. And, uh, you know, I've, I've learned that um, in order to make change within your art, you need to have a voice in it and you need to know how to speak about it and you need to be able to reach people. And the things that move me about the life that I've lived are so directly related to my indigenous identity and to my, my growing up, you know, um, and I think that, uh, finding ways to share that and bring that into my work. It's not so much that I want to be like an indigenous artist who only does indigenous work. It's like, I want to be an artist who, you know, brings indigenous ideas to the table, you know, and, and is able to 
to share them with people so they understand them because I think the world can be better, you know, in collective if we understand each other better and if we are doing the work to to get there. Because because part of this too is this collective only works because Nathan is coming to the table to learn and to open, you know, himself up for criticism without defensiveness and also for um for complete change of some of his stories, you know, and I think that that creates a really good relationship because of course I'm not right about everything, but I do have, I do have a part of myself that, that Nathan will never have because he didn't have the experience I had, you know? And so I think that collective, it just creates a fuller story, you know, because we're able to understand and see each other in different ways. Mm -hmm which is, you know, why it's important to my art practice that it's in collective because I think it's a better story for that. And yeah. Thank you. I just want to remind our listeners that if you have a question, you're welcome to unmute and, and share your questions. Um, so don't hesitate to, to jump in. Uh, Nathan, what, um, what is it about the current times that we're going through really complex, layered, um, tough times that uh, makes your work particularly important to you right now? Mm -hmm. How does it fuel your work? Uh, uh. Well, so I got to say the one thing that I'm happy about right now, which it wouldn't have been this way a month or two months ago, um, the, the people that take an anti-racist stance, uh, that was like basically opening yourself up to like all sorts of weird conversations with other white people. Uh, that is not happening right now. So I, like, um, I, an example is I quit doing a lot of teaching artist work because I was very, very, uh, well, I, I took a break from it. I, I got a little exhausted of going in and teaching people to work in more culturally relevant ways. And like, usually the first question from an older white person would be like, why do you care about native stuff? I'd be like, oh, okay. So we're going to have this conversation for 20 minutes before we get back to helping you connect with your native students a little better, but that's okay. Um, so I just needed a little break, but I'm hoping now that enough sea change has happened where people aren't going to say that kind of ignorant stuff at the, at the front of a conversation. Um, so that feels good to me. I'm hoping, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be that way. Uh, all the other stuff I'm honestly feeling really hopeful watching kids protest right now it makes me so unbelievably proud and happy to see how well they're doing it in, in spite of so much um but uh, on top of that there is a lot of negative stuff that's been pulling at all of us um i don't think the work i do is giving myself a respite or like an escape from it, I, I don't see especially science fiction as being something outside of that. I think the good science fiction and genre fiction stuff has always incorporated, you know, what's going on 
and it's a reflection of you know anything from civil rights to you know in, any other sort of issues and i like seeing uh, a lot of indigenous sovereignty issues coming out of this um, moment it, it's a very complicated answer for me uh, because it's such a, a complicated situation but it didn't deter me like it actually made me feel like oh i should be i'm completely fine to be drawing pictures of superheroes right now it's okay yeah absolutely what do you think melissa what is it about these times right now that are um good grist you know for the work that you want to do how are you how are you feeling fueled and inspired how are you finding inspiration um really it's a i would say the last the last couple weeks have been really tough been really hard you know because i think that um that we, we have a lot of people who are so primed and ready for change and ready to see it in action and and ready to see it ready to see it in a way that i think sometimes goes against that understanding that collective that community you know it's like i think that um moving forward and hopefully what is our new world right because we're realizing that our old world wasn't really working for most people you know that um we're able to perspective take and see each other's experiences and i feel like my work is shifting in that like i can't do anything but make work about that right now you know and um and so for me it's like it's indigenous place naming for me it's it's going out once a week to Chickaloon and gather with my aunt, you know, and, you know, do Devil's Club solve and, and uh, make, make information accessible to people through resources, through, through land acknowledgement, you know, I've been doing the workshops through Benel and, um, and then also making, making like healing sort of acts, you know, connected to people. I think I saw Linda uh, on here and Linda's going to be, we're part of a collective Alaska Native Place and tomorrow, um, not tomorrow, Monday, um, we're going to have a class on Devil's Club Harvest. And we're like, how can we do this when we can't gather? And so we're just problem solving to make that happen, right? We're making a video for people to go gather and they'll go gather. And then on Monday, we'll all sit in front of the Zoom and we'll peel the bark, you know, and then we'll take the bark medicine and then we'll cut the beads, you know, together in two hours but it's like so it's it's a lot of problem solving of like how we can do the things that we need to do because almost more almost now almost more than ever we need to find a way to like make a make a map for our future and and like make it one that's like equitable and and part of like what justice should be which is which is the recognition of people's lives <laughs> you know and um so yeah for me uh it's shifted into a lot of problem solving you know um which is a uh, a muscle that i haven't had to like work for a while because i've been very privileged in all of my art opportunities and that my community and my friends and my you know people i care about are just sort of like reaching out and giving me opportunities and nathan's like oh it's like do you want to do you want me to like throw some money at you and do you want to like listen to me and i'm like 
you know, it, it's, it's kind of come at me in a way that was like so privileged. And now it's like trying to establish um, a way to like spread that wealth to other people, you know? So that's a long answer. What it is is problem solving and strategizing, like how to continue to do the things that have always fed us and that we particularly need to heal us right now. Mm. Well, that's powerful. Nathan, as a special ed teacher, you spend a lot of time, I'm just going to guess, a lot of time problem solving. Yes. So what <laughs> is it about that work that um, helps you do your other work, your, your artwork, and um, your work of um, staying purposeful and collective in your creative work? How does that... Um, Wow. Talk, talk us through a little bit of a situation in, a, in your classroom. And I, I know it's really complicated because you're, you're working a lot with autistic kids and you're dealing with this in extreme, ex, extremely um, complex forms of intelligence. Right. You, you've showed me some drawings that your students do. Yeah. And, and how you work with them. Could you talk a little bit about what you learned from them? Yes. Um, so I, for years I had taught special ed and I was a new media artist and they didn't really interact with each other. You know, a lot of people didn't know, um, <laughs> so for example, the, uh, there was a newspaper article when the creative capital hit, they came out and somebody at the school I work at found it and, uh, I got pulled into the principal's office. And they said, you know, how come you didn't tell us you were an artist who was doing this kind of stuff? And my basic response was, well, nobody ever asked me if I was a new media artist. So I didn't feel the need to offer that to anybody. On the, um, on the other side, I was doing this comic book group uh, at Bosco's. And there was this adult with autism who was making a comic book. And uh, we ended up having a discussion. And... Um, he said, you know, I have autism. And I said, I know. He's like, how do you know? And I, I told him it's because of the way you hold your hands. You know, people with autism hold their hands a very specific way when they're trying to not move a lot. And uh, he said, oh, I thought I was doing such a good job. And I said, you know, that's what I do for a living is I teach kids with autism. And he, he said, why didn't you tell me? I said, well, you never asked me if I was an autism teacher. I didn't feel the need to offer it unless it came up in context. But um, when I first started doing it, it was just necessity. I was substitute teaching. And then um, being an artist, I think, this is a guess, most of us are kind of neurodivergent already as artists. So we're a little sensitive uh, to the way people would treat us when we were having like strong internal moments. Like if we were in a, a high uh, creative phase or a really low creative phase, like people still talk to us uh, like we're being obstinate, we're just being difficult, all this kind of stuff. And we internalize that really deeply uh, as a society, you know, the kind of upfront people letting us know that we're worthless for following artistic pursuits and that we have nothing to contribute to society. We're not going to have decent jobs. We're low lives, whatever. Uh, that kind of language is like thrown, this is like way off topic, kind of thrown on uh, kids with autism a bit. Autism is one of the, the, the 
it's not a disorder, it's a different condition, but it's one of the conditions that our society still treats people with autism like there's a rehabilitation that's gonna cure the autism on them. Uh, we don't do that for people with cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, but we sure as shit are gonna keep doing it to people with autism. And it, it's perpetuated by a whole bunch of different things. But what a lot of people who aren't around that community don't realize is that those people are internalizing this very deeply. And what they are hearing is that autism is gross, they're gross, they're stupid, they're disgusting. Every one of the kids I work with has been bullied. 100% of the people with autism in this world are bullied harshly. Um, so when, when I'm working with that group, that, that's like part of the heart and the spirit of it is that the, the one thing you can provide to them is you are not a family member, but you can listen and laugh at their jokes. You can talk to them like they're cool kids, like they're awesome. Like you just like being around them, which I actually do, but this is something that a lot of them haven't experienced before. So how is this connected to art? Anyway, they were never connected before. Like I would just do different things. That was my job. Um, but as I started letting them kind of bleed together a little bit more um, because uh, being an artist was kind of an easy way for me to like enter into this world. And because so many of them are creative in very different ways. Um, and then the, the job I was offered at Windler, they gave me like a hybrid program that had an art element inside of it. So I got to create a program to teach art to kids with autism. Um, so I just started blending them together. And then, you know, they, a lot of the technology, new media stuff is perfect for teaching uh, an autism class. We call it a structured learning classroom. Uh, so they just blend together. And then um, the program is so wonderful now. And actually in book three, not to bring it back to Wintermoot, but um, the children and I created the villain. And uh, the villain, you know, half of my kids right now are, um, Denina or Yupik kids, and we talked a lot about, you know, we use a lot of indigenous stories in the classroom, specifically Denina stories. Um, so my kids really love this Denina story called Raven and the Half-Human, and they love this character, Gilliac. It's like this kind of like bad guy character in Denina stories. So the conversations are what, what makes Gilliac so evil or bad, and it's always like this chaotic element inside of it. So the, the students created this chaotic villain who's like this uh, French Canadian vampire, but French Canadian vampires have beaver teeth instead of vampire teeth. And he doesn't really stay in this reality. He kind of loses it and goes between all these different things. But the, the main villain in book three was created by kids with autism. And the main character, Arit, the um, Denina Atna woman, she's the superhero, but she also has autism. So in the book, that's kind of explored what indigenous autism for a female looks like in a superhero context and, and the villain. It, it's a very complicated set of stories without getting too much into it, but you know, it, it's a really fascinating world that very few people have been able to experience. Uh, a, a young indigenous female with autism are some of the most fascinating people on this planet. When, when you speak with them, when you interact with them, the way they hold their bodies, the way they move their eyes, the way they retell stories or make up stories. It, it's just, it's this wonderful world that um, totally deserves to be, you know, 
seen by everybody. Not that everybody's going to understand it, um, but there's elements of it. That was a very long answer. I apologize. Thank you for that. I'm really grateful for that. You both are really generous speakers and super fascinating people. I could honestly um, talk for uh, a whole nother episode about that work that you're, you're doing, Nathan. But I'm, what I get from our conversation, lots of things, um, but, but the commitment that you both have to looking at and holding the complexity of life um, with, a, with a really deep sense of um, purpose and empathy, not being discouraged by that, but actually really looking deeply at how you can creatively problem solve and engage more people to understand, especially people who have um, not, who have been misrepresented or underrepresented. And that's really fascinating work. I admire that. It's not even just like, just like trying to take the perspective of an indigenous woman. It's an indigenous woman who's like not typically neuro, you know, neurotypical, right, would be the term. And it's just, uh, I really encourage everyone to get Winter Moot book three because there's, I read it and it was something that was like, it makes you realize things about, about people who aren't, you know, neurotypical that you wouldn't necessarily even pick up on, you know, and, and Nathan shapes it into a way that, that your internal listening to this person, like have this dialogue of saying, this is what, you know, people diagnosed me as, but actually it's my power. Actually, it's what makes me a special, powerful person who is a superhero. You know, it completely like flips it, you know, and in some ways, people who might not be as, who might not know that somebody has autism or some might not know that somebody is is doing this for a specific specific reason like it turns into kind of this like norm you know which is something that i would have never picked up on until i read wintermoot a comic right <laughs> a comic <laughs> you know it's <laughs> so it's 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 really it's really cool and taught me a lot yeah you just made me feel emotional, so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both so much. Um, yeah, you've, you've, you've sort of um, touched on a whole other area that I'm really interested in looking at in dialogues, which has to do with, um, you know, creativity and mental health and mania and the problems with um, medication that suppress that stream. And um, I'd love to talk, you know, with artists more about that. I always look forward to my conversations with each of you. I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. That was wonderful. Thank was you. Special. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this conversation will be online at benellarts.org. Next week, we're going to talk with three dancers who are dancing alone these days. Becky Kendall um, in Anchorage with Momentum. Uh, Mariah Maloney, who grew up in Homer and now lives in, in New York City, and um, Maura Garcia, who's um, Cherokee and Metamesquite, uh, indigenous artist who um, has spent time in Alaska in residency and continues to work and frequently post her dances on Instagram. So come back.
And um, thank you so much. Take good care. I'll see you soon. You know, I, you. I also like to say one more thing that um, if you can, you know, to find ways to uh, work on anti-racism, today is Juneteenth and uh, just, we should just recognize and remember that um, that's today. Thank you. Yeah, we have a, we have a Juneteenth um, celebration in Homer at WKFL Park from 3.30 to 7 um, tonight. I hope I see some fellow Homerites there. Thank you. Yeah. And please make sure you sign the petition to remove the statue of Captain Cook. That's right. Yes. If you haven't seen that petition, yeah. just um, contact oh. any one of us. We'll help to. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.